The first excerpt that I'm going to read from, uh, it's a little, a little daunting because it's, um, it's a lecture uh, from Madeline Langle. So I'm going to read her words. And you can hear me. Okay. A book has a life of its own. It is not private property of the writer. With every book I write, I become more aware of the fact that the book comes to me, introduces itself, and tells me that it has chosen me to write about it. It asks me, do you think you can do it? There are times I'm sure I cannot. But once the book picks me, it does not let me stay alone until I sit down and get it on paper. Once the book comes to me and demands to be written, it doesn't leave me alone. It wakes me up at night, and occasionally I also burn the food I cook for dinner. It invariably pushes me further than I want to go. It laughs at my simple little plots. Characters I never dreamt of appear out of the blue, and they take part of, in different actions and change everything around. Those characters do such things in an intimate matter that I wouldn't have earlier believed that they were capable of doing. One time, I was vaguely aware that the book was pushing me in a direction I had never taken before. It was my ninth book, two of the earlier ones never got published, and it was the first time that I had moved into fantasy or science fiction in order to say things which couldn't be said otherwise in the language of provable fact. I believed in the book I wrote, but when the first rejection came, it was a painful one. I wasn't prepared for two years of rejections. One publisher said that she might be rejecting an Alice in Wonderland, but she was afraid of it. Several publishers, frankly, hated it. Many thought it was too difficult for children, but not quite for adults. And I had a number of publications telling me they would publish it if I made the book easier so that children could understand it. If I had changed the plot, it would have made the book totally different. But I was tempted, very tempted. A Wrinkle in Time came at the end of a decade of rejection, and along with the impulse to write a book, there also comes an impulse to share it. A book which is not published and read is stillborn. I desperately want it to be published. I am sure that pride comes in there, as well as the need to be read. I spent a large amount of time writing the book when other wives and mothers were making pie crusts and mopping the kitchen floor. And when I wasn't justifying this time by publication or money, I felt defensive and looked down on. My temptation to make the changes that the publishers wanted became severe when my agents, along with my husband, asked me to make them without being stubborn. I was perfectly willing to revise my work for years. When the publishers got the book, I could see what they wanted me to do and understood that they wanted my work to be strengthened and have more depth. I wasn't afraid of the change I was asked for. But stubborn or not, plain, pig-headed or not, there was something in me which did not let me change the basic pattern of the book. I could not diminish the integrity of the work. And I, I know that sounds pompous, but I can't help it because there are no other words to express what I mean. It was the integrity of the book itself which kept me from whittling it down into less than it was. 
So that was from her lecture, a lecture. Um, and now I'm going to read um, an excerpt from A Wrinkle in Time itself. And um, it's about the first time tessering. The trees were lashed into a violent frenzy. Meg screamed and clutched at Calvin, and Mrs. Witch's authoritative voice called out, Quiet, child. That's the way my grandmother read Mrs. Witch, by the way. Okay. Did a shadow fall across the moon, or did the moon simply go out, extinguished as abruptly and completely as a candle? There was still the sound of leaves, a terrified, terrifying rushing. All light was gone. Darkness was complete. Suddenly the wind was gone and all sound. Meg felt that Calvin was being torn from her. When she reached for him, her fingers touched nothing. She screamed out, Charles! And whether it was to help him or for him to help her, she didn't know. The word was flung back down her throat and she choked on it. She was completely alone. She had lost the protection of Calvin's hand. Charles was nowhere either to save or to turn to. She was alone in a fragment of nothingness. No light, no sound, no feeling. Where was her body? She tried to move in panic, but there was nothing to move. Just as light and sound had vanished, she was gone too. The corporeal Meg was not. Oh, then she felt her limbs again. Her legs and arms were tingling faintly as though they had been asleep. She blinked her eyes rapidly, but though she herself was somehow back, nothing else was. It was not as simple as darkness or absence of light. Darkness has a tangible quality. It can be moved through and felt. In darkness, you can bark your shins. The world of things still exists around you. She was lost in a horrifying void. It was the same way with silence. This was more than silence. A deaf person can feel vibrations. Here, there was nothing to feel. Suddenly, she was aware of her heart beating rapidly within the cage of her ribs. Had it stopped before? What had made it start again? The tingling in her arms and legs grew stronger, and suddenly she felt movement. This movement, she felt, must be the turning of the earth, rotating on its axis, traveling its elliptic course about the sun. And this feeling of moving with the earth was somewhat like the feeling of being in the ocean, out in the ocean beyond this rising and falling of the breakers, lying on the moving water, pulsing gently with the swells and feeling the gentle, inexorable tug of the moon. I am asleep. I am dreaming, she thought. I'm having a nightmare. I want to wake up. Let me wake up. Well, Charles Wallace's voice said, that was quite a trip. I do think you might have warned us. Light began to pulse and quiver. Meg blinked and shoved shakily at her glasses. And there was Charles Wallace standing indignantly in front of her, his hands on his hips. Meg, he shouted, Calvin, where are you? She saw Charles. She heard him, but she didn't, could not go to him. She could not shove through this strange, trembling light to meet him. Calvin's voice came as though it were pushing through a cloud. 
Well, just give me time, will ya? I'm older than you are. Meg gasped. It wasn't that Calvin wasn't there and then that he was. It wasn't that part of him came first and then the rest of him followed, like a hand and then an arm, an eye and then a nose. It was a sort of shimmering, a looking at Calvin through water, through smoke, through fire. And then there he was, solid and reassuring. Meg, Charles Wallace's voice came. Meg, Calvin, where's Meg? I'm right here, she tried to say, but her voice seemed to be caught at its source. Meg, Calvin cried, and he turned around looking about wildly. Mrs. Witch, you haven't left Meg behind, have you? Charles Wallace shouted. If you've hurt Meg, any of you, Calvin started. But suddenly Meg felt a violent push and a shattering as though she had been thrust through a wall of glass. Ah, there you are, Charles Wallace said and rushed over to her and hugged her. But where am I? Meg asked breathlessly, relieved to hear that her voice was now coming out of her in more or less a normal way. Hi. Um, the first excerpt I'm going to read is from A Wrinkle in Time, and it's part of the climax. When, to remind you, <laughs> Meg goes back to rescue her brother Charles Wallace from it. It was absolutely silent within the dome, and yet Meg realized that the only way to speak was to shout with all the power possible. For everywhere she looked, Everywhere she turned was the rhythm, and as it continued to control the systole and diastole of her heart, the intake and outlet of her breath, the red miasma began to creep before her eyes again, and she was afraid that she was going to lose consciousness, and if she did that, she would be completely in the power of it. Mrs. Wetsit had said, Meg, I give you your faults. What were her greatest faults? Anger, impatience, Stubbornness. Yes, it was to her faults that she turned to save herself now. With an immense effort, she tried to breathe against the rhythm of it, but its power was too strong. Each time she managed to take a breath out of rhythm, an iron hand seemed to squeeze her heart and lungs. Then she remembered that when they had been standing before the man with red eyes, and the man with red eyes had been intoning the multiplication table at them, Charles Wallace had fought against his power by shouting out nursery rhymes and Calvin by the Gettysburg Address. Georgie Porgy pudding and pie, she yelled, kissed the girls and made them cry. That was no good. It was too easy for nursery rhymes to fall into the rhythm of it. She didn't know the Gettysburg Address. How did the Declaration of Independence begin? She had memorized it only that winter, not because she was required to at school, but simply because she liked it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, she shouted, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As she cried out the words, she felt a mind moving in on her own, felt it seizing, squeezing her brain. Then she realized that Charles Wallace was speaking or being spoken through by it. 
But that's exactly what we have on camisots, complete equality. Everybody exactly alike. For a moment, her brain reeled with confusion. Then came a moment of blazing truth. No, she cried triumphantly. Like and equal are not the same thing at all. Good girl, Meg, her father shouted at her. But Charles Wallace continued as though there had been no interruption. In Camazots, all are equal. In Camazots, everybody is the same and everybody else. In Camazots, everybody is the same as everybody else. But he gave her no argument, provided no answer, and she held on to her moment of revelation. Like and equal are two entirely different things. Um, and then the next ep excerpt is from a rough draft of A Wrinkle in Time that um, this excerpt didn't make it into the final version of the book. Um, but um, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, and this, takes this scene takes place um, after Dr. Murray desperately tessers Meg and Calvin off of Camazot's um, leaving Charles Wallace behind. Well, Megatron, if you're thinking that perhaps the brain simply marched in and took over all the minds on Camazots, that it and the black thing are one and the same, it isn't nearly as simple as that. Well, how then? Well, in the first place, I'm sure it must have been a long, slow, drawn-out process, taking not only thousands but billions of centuries. It was one of many possible ultimate ends. But how? Well, it was the logical outcome of two things. Of complete totalitarianism in some countries. What's totalitarianism? Calvin had come back and was standing with a load of wool in his arms. Mr. Murray looked at, looked at him and Calvin said, it's like Russia under Khrushchev or Germany and Hitler, countries under dictatorships. Franco, Mussolini, Castro, Mao. And then, what about countries like ours, Meg asked? Ones that aren't under dictatorships, democracies. Mr. Murray sighed. He picked Meg up in his arms very carefully, saying, I think we'll carry you back to the edge of the forest before we light the fire. You'll be a little safer there. Then he answered her question. It's an equally logical outcome of too much prosperity. Or you could put it that it's the result of too strong a desire for security. Although Meg could still not move her arms or legs, she was no longer frightened as she lay in her father's arms, and he carried her tenderly towards the trees. For the moment, she felt completely safe and secure, and it was the most beautiful feeling in the world. So she said, but father, what's wrong with security? Everybody likes to be all cozy and safe. Yes, Mr. Murray said grimly. Security is a most seductive thing. Well, but I want to be secure, Father. I hate feeling insecure. But you don't love security enough so that you guide your life by it, Meg. You weren't thinking of security when you came to rescue me with Mrs. Who, Mrs. Whatsit, and Mrs. Which. But that didn't have anything to do with me, Meg protested. I wasn't being brave or anything. They just took me. Calvin, walking beside them with his load of wood, said, smiling warmly at Meg, Yes, but when we got here, you didn't go around whining or asking to go home where you could be all safe and cozy. You kept yelling, where's father? Take me to father. 
You never gave a thought to security. Oh, Meg said. Oh. She brooded for another moment, but I still don't see why security isn't a good thing. Why, Father? I've come to a conclusion, Mr. Murray said slowly, that it's the greatest evil there is. Suppose your great-grandmother and all those like her had worried about security. They'd never have gone across the land in flimsy-covered wagons. Our country has been the greatest when it has been most insecure. This sick longing for security is a dangerous thing, Meg, as insidious as a strontium-90 from our nuclear explosions that worried you so about Charles Wallace when you read in science at school that it was being found in greater and greater quantities in milk. You can't see strontium-90. You can't feel it or touch it, but it's there. So I'm interested in hearing from each of you what your first encounter was with the book, um, what you remember about it, if you revisited it when you heard that it was going to be adopted. Um, yeah, what were your first encounters? Do you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Madeline Langle's eldest granddaughter, <laughs> um, I, uh, I just knew her as my grandmother. and. Uh, and she was wonderful, and we were close, and, and uh, it was a beautiful relationship. But then I read, in second grade, my teacher um, at story time started reading A Wrinkle in Time and I, out loud to us. And I'd always seen the book um, in the house, because she had lots of copies. Um, but I wasn't reading those big kind of books yet. Um, so, so I hadn't picked it up. And she had said that I wasn't ready to read it, um, in fact. But uh, so my teacher started reading it. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> we're reading it. And um, so she read the first half of the first chapter. And I, the school was very close to my grandmother's house, so I went straight over to her house, got a copy of A Wrinkle in Time, curled up on her bed, and read the whole thing. And um, it's been my favorite book ever since. I read it every single year. Um, so I've sometimes multiple times when I was a kid. And, um, and, I, get, and I wasn't totally ready for it when I was seven, but I, I still loved it. And, um, and then I get something new out of it every time I read it. And, um, and yeah, so that was, that was it. Um. I forget exactly how old I was, but maybe like, I don't know, nine, 10 or something. Um, and I always had this habit of like, uh, we lived near a small library and just like going through, uh, I went through all, like I started from like A for like the science fiction and fantasy sections. Um, and I also did it for like children's lit and YA. Um, and of course, like A Wrinkle in Time was kind of also just pushed out in front there, um, and I think it, um, and as a kid who had read like, you know, YA and stuff, and like also lots of science fiction and fantasy, it still blew my goddamn mind um, <laughs> for so many reasons. Um, like I really admired how, um, you know, the hero of the book, like the protagonist, um, Meg is legitimately like an awkward person 
like no, it's not fake awkward like oh you're so glamorous and like great but you hate yourself but you'll see that you're actually beautiful and smart like no like she 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 can be plain she can be stubborn and irritating and i felt like it was just so generous and so like um i don't know like madeline langle like how she must have just seen the people and the the teens and preteens around her to have actually seen how weird and and I don't know, uncomfortable you can be um, at that age, but also still very much like a worthy person. Um, uh, and then, you know, I think the family, the family like relationship was almost more fantastical to me than the, you know, science fiction and all of that. Like, and the, the planet was like Ant Beast. I was just like, wow, like everyone's so smart and they communicate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like at, at different points, like they all seem to be really listening to each other, even the children. I was like, what? Who does that? Uh, and it, and it, was, it was something that was very beautiful to see uh, amidst, of course, like all of these other goings on um, that are not, you know, necessarily in the realm of realism. Um, and then finally, another thing I, uh, that really struck me um, was uh, how Calvin, right, uh, is like, you know, Meg's love interest and like a kind of a popular kid, like just very, you know, seemingly carefree, easygoing. Um, and when he says he feels like a misfit too, uh, I guess, I guess reading that at a young age, that struck me because I was just like, why are you a misfit? Why do you feel like a misfit? Oh, everybody does, like ever. Um, Cause that's like being a human. Um, and I think it maybe started to instill in me more sympathy or slash empathy for people who seem to have it all or to be completely comfortable um, to maybe think that they aren't and I just don't see it, so taught me a lot of things. <laughs> um, as Madeline's younger granddaughter, she's so, <laughs> she's so young. Um, I, I actually really don't have a good story about reading it for the first time. I don't remember. Um, it feels to have been just sort of always part of what I knew. Um, but I, of course, sort of reread it um, often and do discover new things in it every time. And when it, you know, I, I tweet for Madeline, so follow her on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and there always seems to be the most appropriate quote at a critical moment. Um, and so um, um, on Sunday for the March for Our Lives, there was a, it was like, oh yes, I remember this quote. Um, about when um, Meg realizes that she has to be the one to go back for Charles Wallace, that there isn't anybody else, that it has to be her. Um, and I thought that that was perfect for this weekend and, and for children, <laughs> um, and, and, but for all of us to learn and relearn and recommit that it's not anybody else, it's us. And we have to do it over and over again. Um, and not just once. We're not just going to fight it and escape Kamazots, and it's over. What Meg learns what she needs on Kamazots in order to go home and keep fighting the darkness. Um, and that's, 
very powerful for me, and that's something that I keep coming back to. Um, for me, I didn't discover A Wrinkle in Time as a child. I discovered it as an adult. Um, as a child, for a number of reasons, I was an avid reader. Um, books, libraries weren't a thing as an immigrant child, um, but there was a lot of stories in my house. I was a TV kid, 80s TV kid. So ask me about Norman Lear sitcoms, I know that. <laughs> um, and even in high school, I really wanted to be that kind of reader and thinker and geeky kid, but I didn't feel I was allowed to. Um, so just, you know, being a black girl in the hood, just being lost in a book, that was like, you know, that was red flags. They were asking for it. If you were sitting in the back of the bus, you know, engrossed in a book. So that wasn't what I was doing until college. I could really, really throw myself into books. And I'm one of the first I really discovered that I love science fiction and fantasy because I, oh, I, I watched Twilight Zone a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I loved, loved, loved Twilight Zone. I loved Star Trek but was embarrassed, too embarrassed to let myself <laughs> love Star Trek or Star Wars. Um, but I discovered um, Octavia Butler first as a sci-fi writer. We share the same birthday, so I thought we had this thing, and I was gonna do what she was doing. And I read um, the first like really sci-fi-ish novel that I read was Parable of the Talents, and I met her. And in college, there was a class, uh, a science fiction, feminist science fiction class in college, and that's when I was reading the, the canon, and one of the first books I really fell in love with, wasn't Wrinkling Time yet, was Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula mm -hmm. Le Guin. And that's when I realized that who I was as a person and a thinker, that I actually loved these big, otherworldly, outer space ideas. And that was transformative for me because I'm like, I'm that person. I'm okay. that nerdy, geeky person who loves science fiction and fantasy. And that opened up a door for me. And that's when I started to write weird stuff that I was calling, you know, that I didn't know was science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I wanted to like really work on my writing. I went to Clarion West, which is like a very popular science fiction fantasy writers workshop and studied with Octavia Butler. And I wanted to do an MFA program, but I realized um, I wanted to write weird stuff and weird stuff in the um, grown up world, MFA world, didn't, wouldn't fly. Um, so I decided to write for young people. I did an MFA for writing for children at Vermont College of Fine Arts. That's where I discovered A Wrinkle in Time because I was looking for science fiction and fantasy, what I wanted to do with children's literature. And I absolutely fell in love with the really brainy physics ideas, Meg as a girl. Um, at the same time, I read Nancy Farmer's The Eye, The Ear, and The Arm. And I absolutely love middle grade science fiction with these really you know, kids who are grappling with big ideas in unconventional ways. And, and, and really after that, I started working on my life as an ice cream sandwich, as this awkward, nerdy girl who loves outer space, grappling with, you know, the universe in that way. So, yeah, sorry so long. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for reading. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you for loving this book. Thank you.